1 Peter 1 and verse 1 to 5, before Craig comes to minister to us. To God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Gosia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen, and may God add his blessing. Let's ask the Lord his blessing now as we come to this part of our meeting this morning. Father, we've been singing glorious truth about you so far today already. We've enjoyed the fellowship of your people. We've known you in our midst. And now, Lord, in these moments, as we settle into our seats, as we open our Bibles, we desperately need you to come. We need it to be your voice that's heard. We need it to be your word that is proclaimed. So do us good. Enrich our souls, we pray. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Welcome back to 1 Peter, everybody. And we have the Bible class with us this morning. And if you're in the Bible class and you're in this main meeting, we're absolutely thrilled to have you with us. I've been thinking about you in the Bible class this week as I've been preparing. And I want to say that if I don't explain something very well, young people, in fact, this applies to anybody, but you need to form a neat orderly queue because I'm going to let the Bible class come first. If I don't explain something very well and you've got questions about it, I would love to talk to you about that later on. So please feel free to do that. I wonder, does anyone recognize this stretch of coastline in our country? Any, any ideas where that is? Dover, near Dover. Yeah, not all that far from Dover. It's Beachy Head uh, near Eastbourne on the south coast of England. The same kind of chalky cliffs that you would get at Dover. And I vividly recall, and my dad's here this morning, he'll remember this as well. I vividly recall what happened when we were there, when I was about nine or ten. We were walking on that cliff top, uh, and these days you could get quite near to the edge. I guess the probably health and safety has probably fairly wisely intervened since then, but you could go quite close to the edge in these days. And there was a school group, a school party walking just ahead of it. Part of the treat for me of being in holiday in England at that time was that the English schools were still in session. And it was, God oh, just loved being off when they were still on. But there was this little group having a day off and a walk around the top of the, the, the cliff. And a few yards back from the cliff edge, the ground had begun to crack. Now, you can see a very small crack here, but in the day when I'm talking about it, it was a much wider crack, a gap wide and deep enough for someone to fall into, and that's exactly what happened. A schoolgirl in her mid-teens stumbled, probably concentrating on not going too near the cliff edge. She, she fell into one of these crevices on the right-hand side. And she was wedged at her midriff, suspended, trapped, out of sight. And the Coast Guard was obviously called, and efforts were made, but, but the gap was too narrow. None of the rescuers who responded was able to, to reach her. 
Finally, they sent for a rescuer from another Coast Guard station. And what qualified him was he was tiny. He was a wee short guy. He was only about five foot something and very wiry, but very, very slender. And he was able to do the job. He was able to get through the gap, go to the casualty, and eventually she was brought back safely to the surface. It was such a relief for all of us who were part of that drama to see her coming back safely. And I can still hear in my memory from all these years ago, a long time ago, nearly 50 years, I can still hear her voice in my head. She was in pain. Her voice was weak. But almost incessantly... From being brought out of the ground until the point when she was put into the ambulance, we could hear her say again and again, thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving me. Oh, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving me. She just kept saying that again and again and again. She obviously knew how potentially desperate her situation was. She was utterly helpless and massively grateful to have been rescued. Now, you know where I'm going, no doubt. But I just wonder this morning... Have you got that level of gratitude to the Lord? If you're a believer, how, if you have the confidence that the Lord has brought you out of the pit from death to life, spiritually speaking, how deep and how real is that gratitude that you feel? How expressive is that gratitude you feel in your heart to the Lord? Is it constantly bubbling over in your heart? Or has the joy of your salvation somewhat lost its sparkle. Now, I tell you that little story about Beachy Head, and I ask you that question about how thankful you are for your salvation, because we find Peter, still in the opening sentences of this letter, unable to contain his joy and gratitude as he thinks about what the Lord has done for his people. And it's pretty clear that Peter is, is excited about how God rescues people. That's the big picture in this whole section that we're slowly working our way through on Sunday mornings. That's what salvation means. It just means rescue. You'll see the word used in verse 5, salvation, verse 9, and into verse 10. Translators have, have tidied up this section for us in our English translations, but in the original language, verse 3 to 9, can you believe this? It's one sentence. Verse 3 to 9 is one big, long sentence. Peter is on a roll. His heart is drawn out in praise and adoration to the Lord for who he is and for what he has done. Peter's readers, we know from last week, are up to their neck in all kinds of serious trouble. They have significant challenges, and he's very aware of that as he writes to them. But as we move on to verses 3 to 5 today, we find that Peter is not overwhelmed by the horrible problems that his readers are facing, but he's overtaken with heartfelt praise to God. And he writes this praise to his, re to his readers, not as a distraction from their troubles, not to try and momentarily get their minds off the real pressures that they're under, but that they might see that everything else in life is a distraction. The good things and the bad things. Everything else is a distraction in comparison to this colossal reality. Will you look at verse 3 and how these words flow from Peter with a kind of volcanic pressure? He just can't keep it in. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know how much pencil chewing 
Peter did as he was writing his letter, but he wasn't chewing his pencil at that point. This just came forward. Blessed be, or in the NIV as you have it there in the journals, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope and pray that you feel that way today, that there is that surprising in your heart as we've sung his praise, as we've already heard his word read. If you know the Lord, and I hope you come to know his saving power if you don't know him. If you're here this morning, we're thrilled if you're here and you don't know the Lord. I want to talk to you about his power to save and what it is that he does if you've never known these things before. But as we begin, this first sentence, this outpouring of praise from Peter, I think it is a reminder to us as a church family who give a big chunk of our time. We sing, we praise the Lord. It's wonderful to do that. I love to hear our voices joining together, being so wonderfully led. But then we give a lot of time to you sitting quietly and someone up the front here with the Bible, this is ancient text, talking about Jesus from his word. We give a lot of time to that. And some believers would say, yeah, it's good what you do. It's good to be into the Bible and so on. But really, what you want is a longer worship session. What you want is real worship. And I'm well aware of the debates that surround that. But the fact is that it's the engagement of our hearts in the Word. It's the engagement of our minds in the truth that causes the praise and the worship to well up within us. It's true that the gospel isn't all about emotional feelings. It's mainly not about emotional feelings. It's mainly about historical facts, as we'll see but these historical facts are life-changing. And from the hearts that have been changed by the Lord, these facts produce feelings. So we are not against emotion. We want there to be an outpouring of joyful praise. And you know, the route to heights of worship is depths of understanding. The more we understand what God has done for us, the more we see His truth, from his word, the higher we can ascend in praise, which is something we want to do. So let's pray that that will happen as we build on the rock, as we hear and do the word of Christ. We don't want this just to be an informational encounter. There is information. Here it is in the text. We do want information. We need this truth, but we don't want it just to be cerebral. We want the truth to sink in a few inches from our minds to our hearts. That's what I've been praying about this week. And please join me in praying for these things. Now, I was struck by three things in these verses. The first is this. I was very struck by the emphasis on God's identity. Let's stay with that outpouring of praise there at the beginning of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father. Our praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The, the striking thing about this, do you see that our God is not just God? He's not just a God. He's not any God. He's not a God that we have made up. He's not a God that we have constructed in our minds down through history that's now recognizable as someone Christians worship. That's not the way it goes. Throughout history, our God, the God of the Bible, has always gone to the trouble of identifying himself so that there would be no confusion as to who we're talking about. No confusion about who we're trusting in. In the Old Testament, he's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Israel, the God of Elijah, the God of Daniel, the God of David, 
as uh, we'll, the children will be hearing through the back even as we speak here this morning. And if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that God has always tied himself to, to what he was doing in the world, to those through whom he was speaking. He's always done that. He's always channeled the understanding of this is the God we're talking about according to what he was saying historically by his authorized spokesman. But all those Old Testament references only pointed forward to the ultimate fixed point of God's identity. And here it is. He's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, it couldn't be clearer that the way to know God, and how do you know God? Lots of people talk about that. Oh, you believe in God? How do you know God? What's he like? Well, the answer to that is, if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. You look at Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says of the Lord Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So if you want to know what God's nature is like, what God in essence is like, we look to Jesus. And conversely, if you don't know God through Jesus, then you don't know God. It's not God you know if we don't come through Jesus. People talk, don't they, about different religions in the world being like a variety of ladders against the wall and you can pick any ladder and uh, climb the ladder and eventually you'll, they all lead to the same God. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you've not come through Jesus, you've not arrived at God. And when I say the way to know God is to look at Jesus, I don't mean to try to picture him in our minds or draw him on a piece of paper and worship that. I don't mean that at all. I mean to look at him in his word. And can I say, if you're, if you're new to these things here this morning in the hall or if you're new watching online, thank you so much for paying attention. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for watching. Thank you for listening. Throughout the year, we have great little courses that we run in smaller groups, and we just look at Jesus from one of the Gospels. We just look at him. We just look at what he said and what he did, and we work it out. And as we look at Jesus, we get to see what he was like, and as we see what he was like, we see what God is like. And you can come to one of these anytime, and we would love you to do so. And you can ask any questions that you have, or you can just sit quietly but if you're interested, please speak to me or please speak to a friend. If you would like to know more about, well, how would I know what God is like? What would it be like to actually look at Jesus in a gospel? If you've never looked at one before seriously, we would love that opportunity. And they're great little groups. They're good, good crack, good fun, as well as that wonderful intent of looking at the Lord Jesus. So do speak to me today. That's the first striking thing, the emphasis in God's identity. And that then leads us on to why Peter was so thrilled by the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing is the emphasis on God's activity. This is what struck me next. How Peter has nothing to say about what he did or about what his readers did in order to be rescued, to be saved. And that's very striking because very often when we hear someone telling the story of how they came to know the Lord, and I'm sure I've done this, we talk about, well, we've been thinking about it for a while and we had lots of questions in our minds and then we went to a certain place at a certain time and we heard a certain thing and then we responded by trusting the Lord. And all of that is perfectly true 
And all of that is, is, is wonderful and it's personally real for us to be able to talk like that. But it's only one side of the story. And here Peter tells us the other side of the story. Have a look again at this uh, verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Why is this praise pouring from your heart, Peter? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. And you could go on to read verse 4 and verse 5 about all that God did, how we're shielded by God's power for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And all of that's all about God's activity. Now, do you see as you look at this text this morning, in your journals or on your Bibles or on your phones or on the screens, do you see that the emphasis is not on what we did, but on what God does to save us? For example, look at the motivation for our, for our salvation. It was, verse 3, according to his great mercy that he took action. And what action he took, we're coming to that. But that was the motivation, the fact that God was motivated by his great mercy towards us. It wasn't just that he was motivated by duty, as the Coast Guard was that day, or by pity, as you and I might be. Certainly, was, he, wasn't he wasn't motivated by justice. There's an injustice going on there, and God's sense of justice says, I must go in and deliver my people because they deserve it. No, it's the opposite. It's mercy. It means that our salvation is entirely undeserved. It's entirely unearned. And if you stick around with us, here at uh, Hamilton Baptist, over time, Lord willing, we will see how staggeringly merci merciful God was to us and is to us. But let me just put it this way to you this morning. That girl who fell into the eroded cliff top at Beachy Head knew that she needed to be saved. She was in no doubt that she needed to be saved. So the rescuer went at his own risk and presumably when he reached her, having fallen into the crevasse, into the cliff face, presumably she cooperated and they both survived. But it wasn't like that when God acted to rescue us in mercy. Yeah, we were wedged down the hole, but instinctively, we were all trying to get further away from our rescuer. Instinctively, we were wanting nothing to do with him. If we could, we would have been throwing things at him. That's the nature of the human heart. But in mercy, in mercy, he kept going. Then what did he do? According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again. That girl I've been talking about this morning, the school girl who fell down the fragmented cliff face, needed rescued from that horrible environment that she was in, trapped wedged with presumably some considerable depth of open space beneath her as the cliff had begun to come away and she was caught in the middle. Horrible place to be. She needed and rescued from that environment, but she was otherwise fine. Once she got out, probably went to hospital, was checked over, presumably got home within a day or two, maybe immediately. But that's not the whole picture with us when we talk about God's rescue. That's why my little story this morning only, it only really gets us to the point of gratitude and praise pouring forth for our salvation. 
Because it's not enough for the Lord just to rescue us from the environment. One day he will do that. He will rescue his people fully and finally from this rebellious world. We get to that in verse 5. But in the first place, the problem is not external to us. It's not just that God rescues us from difficulties and from pressures around us and even from temptations around us. He will eventually do that. But that in itself is not enough. It's not just the territory that's the problem. It's not external to us. The problem is internal to us. So deep and so intractable was our condition in our spiritual lostness, in our natural disinterest in God, in our natural worship of self rather than worship Him. We're all like that. Jonathan was pulling our legs this morning when he said about me being a holy man. That's a lot of nonsense. He knows that. He's just winding me up. And he did it very effectively. It was good for the children to hear it. Because it's not true of me and it's not true of anybody. We're all lost. We're all by nature far from what we ought to be. The only solution was for us to become brand new people. And that's why God has caused us to be born again. That's the, that's the essence of the rescue. So the picture of the cave rescue or the mountain rescue or the Coast Guard, a beach ahead, doesn't help us here. Because the Coast Guard didn't descend into the depth and bring out a renewed person. Someone made brand new. No, he didn't do that. Didn't need to in that situation. Needs to do it in this situation. The Lord needs to do that for me, not just get me out of the mess I'm in. He needs to change me fundamentally, internally. He needs to change you like that. We need to be made new from the inside. We have to be born again. Given new birth. And we can't accomplish that for ourselves. We can no more arrange our spiritual rebirth then we can arrange our physical birth. I mean, how did you get on with that? How did you get on figuring out when you would be born and where you would be born and to whom? Of course, none of us had any control over that. Your minds might be going to, if you know the passage, John chapter 3, where the Lord Jesus told Nicodemus that he must be born again. And you know when Jesus said that to Nicodemus, we love that part in the story, doesn't it? He? he comes to Jesus at night and he wants to know how can he... How can he see the kingdom of God? And Jesus says to him, you must be born again. And we always think, oh, that was a great part in the story. And it was. But there wasn't a thing Nicodemus could do about that when Jesus said that. You must be born again. Now what? And Jesus knew that. No wonder Peter writes, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He's done something utterly impossible, humanly speaking. He has given new birth to us in order that we could be rescued. And can I say in passing, sometimes the phrase born again is used as though it's a kind of subcategory of Christian, like you get all these normal Christians and then there's a few born agains, the nutters kind of idea. You know, that's the way that that's the way that it's often portrayed. Oh, he's a born-again Christian. It's like, not good enough for him just to be a Christian. He has to be a born-again Christian. Can we just be crystal clear? That is nonsense. Being a born-again Christian is not a subcategory of an ordinary Christian. What was true of old Nicodemus in John 3 is true of everyone. We all must 
be born again. You can't be a Christian without being born again, without having this new life imparted by the Spirit of God. And God in his mercy, do you see this verse? He causes that to happen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It, gets, it just gets more wonderful the more you think about it. According to his great mercy, to those who are totally undeserving of it, he has caused us to be born again. Born into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now here's the core of Peter's outpouring of loving worship to the Lord at the beginning of verse 3. He praises the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because that God and Father gave his Son, the Lord Jesus, to live among us as a real flesh and blood human, to take our sin upon us as he went to the cross, to die for us in our place, bearing the punishment of our sin as we saw last week in that amazing phrase that we were sprinkled by the blood that he shed for our cleansing. And then he raised his son from death to life. From that death, that's what he's talking about. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, not just, not just normal death, that death in the place of sinners. He raised them from that death to show that our to show us that death had been defeated and our eternal life had been accomplished for everyone who has known the mercy of God and who is born again. And so we are born again into a living hope. It's a hope that is founded in such solid reality that it stands against whatever life may throw at us. I look out on you this morning and I know some of the pain, some of the sadness that's been visited upon our church family this week but there'll be a lot more that I don't know about. And through all the struggles and all the pain and all the discouragement of life, here is a living hope because of what the God, God the Father has achieved by the life and death of resurrection and resurrection of His Son. We have this living hope that, that we live with that transform, transforms all the living in the ups and downs of life, transforms all of that because it's such a well-grounded hope. And this is a good point to see what I meant by earlier on when I said that the gospel is not built on feelings but on facts. Well, here it is. The death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, these are historically verifiable facts. And the living hope we have is built on the facts. We build our lives on the solidity but these historical events give rise to the personal experience, a living hope. I wonder, can you imagine how this landed with Peter's first readers when they gathered in the little assemblies and Peter's letter arrived and maybe one of the elders read the letter, surrounded as they were by the pressures of life as exiles. They gathered to hear this and they must have twigged that if they'd all been born again, if that was true of all of them in that group who followed the Lord Jesus Christ, if they'd all been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, then they were all born again into the same family. I wonder when it dawned on them. And that's the reality for local churches. It's because we're born anew. We're all born into the same family. 
because God has caused us to be born again. The emphasis in God's identity, the emphasis in God's activity. The third thing for us to look at today, slight change in the direction of the heading, the emphasis on our security. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again. And I'm going to jump now to verse 4. He's caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through salvation for a faith, uh, sorry, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. How good is that? We live as exiles in the world. Whether or not we amount to much in this world is really largely irrelevant because the living hope we have at this moment points us to the lived experience we will have in the future. Because we're born again into the family of God, because we're all in line for an internal inheritance, that inheritance is life forever with the Lord Jesus and all all pleasure, all joy, all ecstasy, all glory, all thrilling excitement is in him. And our inheritance is life with him forevermore. This must have been mind-blowing for those exiles who had a very low expectation, humanly speaking. Were they going to be able to tough it out for the rest of their lives? Were they going to be able to make ends meet? Were they going to be able to keep their jobs what was going to become of them? But they had this glorious inheritance. And look at these amazing adjectives. I think they're adjectives. I'm looking at them in the ESV, but it's very simple to make the transition from the NIV. First of all, imperishable. An inheritance that can never perish. Everything eventually perishes in this world. Everything perishes in this world. Things and people but not our, not our eternal inheritance. It cannot perish. It is imperishable. And then it's undefiled. Everything is defiled in this world. Even our praise and worship, even the best and cleanest thoughts we can have, it's all shot through with our fallenness, with our sin. That's why it's so amazing that God in mercy has caused us to be born again, brought us into his family through the resurrection of his own son from the death that he died in order to make sinners his. It's an incredible truth. Everything, everyone is defiled. But so nothing is entirely unaffected by humanity's calamitous fall into sin and rebellion against God. Everything beautiful is eventually tinged with ugliness and, and sin and regret. But this is wonderful to know. When we, when we read about the fact that this inheritance of ours, this life forever with the Lord Jesus is undefiled, this is great to know. Nothing like that can negatively impact your life with the Lord Jesus for eternity. Now, now think about that for a moment this morning. None of the ugliness of this world, none of the remorse that you feel, none of the hurt, none of the misery either that you've experienced that's been inbound to you or that you've caused and that, that still gives you pain when you think about it. None of that can be carried forward into the, the life that we're talking about here. None of that can affect the inheritance that we're going to have together. 
The sin of this life and its horrible implications cannot lay a glove on the life with the Lord Jesus for eternity that is our inheritance. It is imperishable, it is undefiled. And you may have a category of experience from this life. By that I mean there may be, there may be things that you chew over in your mind again and again and again. And they sometimes take you to dark places and to deep worries and terrible anxieties. You, you may have this kind of category and you think that you will, you will never get over certain things. And you even think that it's impossible to imagine a life, even in glory, that could be entirely free of a, a certain sadness or a certain guilt or a certain fear that completely dominates your life just now that just triggers you when you think about it. But here it is. Brothers and sisters, here it is. This is the meaning of that inheritance being undefiled. Your inheritance, your life with the Lord Jesus Christ will not be impacted by any of these things. Not the most deep and gouging, bitter pain or sorrow or fear or havoc or tragedy or guilt, or whatever it may be. It's very hard to imagine just now, but living by faith means we take him at his word. And we're able to construct that in our minds and say, well, that must be true. I'm going to think about that. I'm going to pray about that. Imperishable, undefiled, thirdly, unfading. Unfading. It will not fade. It can never perish, spoil, or fade. Do you ever think about what it will be like to be with the Lord? Even as I'm talking about it this morning, talking about glory, talking about heaven, talking about being the recipients of that inheritance that Peter's writing to, to, to us about. Do you ever think deep in your heart, great though it will be, do you ever worry that you might get a little bit bored? Am I the only one that's ever had thoughts like that over the years? A wee bit of nervous laughter rippling around the building this morning. Just, is it just going to be like one big Sunday? I mean, Sundays are great, but is it just going to be one big Sunday? Like Sundays are now with all the different pressures you've got in your head, and all the different experiences. It's not going to be like that. Be assured. It won't be boring. It won't be repetitive. The initial shine will never come off it. In fact, the initial shine will only increase and shine more brightly forever. We will spend, can you imagine this? We will spend forever increasingly growing in our loving admiration of the Lord Jesus. The most amazing person you've met, the most person you love most in your life, you will get to know them, warts and all. And you'll get to know great things about them. And you'll still get to know fresh things about them that are lovely, but you cannot be forever enraptured by any human in this world and discover new and more glorious things every day. But that's going to be our portion forever. You won't be bored. It won't just be like one big Sunday or one big choir practice or whatever the thoughts are. It won't be floating about on blooming clouds playing harps. How on earth that picture ever came up, I do not know. But that is not the biblical picture of heaven. It's a rock-solid reality with this Savior 
in whom are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we will grow forever more fascinated with him. I love the lines of the hymn we sometimes sing when I think about what that will be like when suffering cease and sorrows die and every longing is satisfied. All the longings that we can't get sorted out just now because some of the longings aren't good, but they're still longings. Somehow on that day, we'll get it all clear and every longing will be satisfied. A joy unspeakable will fill our souls for we will be truly home. That's why wonderful our inheritance is and how secure it is. It's kept in heaven for you, verse 4. It's kept in heaven for you. So you get to experience a lot of the joy of the Christian life now, but the absolute, unconditional, joy unspeakable is kept in heaven for you. And it's not just our future that's secure. Now as we close, we come back to God's activity for our security at this very moment. Verse 5, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's our current experience if we have faith in him, if we trust in the Lord Jesus, if we've handed everything over to him. So now we are in the picture. This is the first time so far in this letter that Peter has said anything about our activity in the rescue of the gospel. And it's essential to see it. You see that phrase? We're kept by God's power. We're being guarded through faith. That's our faith in him. That day at Beachy Head, the rescuer reached the casualty and managed somehow to secure a harness to her, and with a rope attached, she was eventually brought back to the surface. Faith, as you find it here in this verse, I'm pointing to the back there, you're wondering, what are you pointing at? Faith there, in verse 5, by God's power we're being guarded through faith. Faith now, what does that look like? That looks like putting on that harness. Don't, if you don't know, if you're not a Christian this morning, if you don't know what that would be like, if you long for some of the things I've been speaking to you about this morning, and, and we've been praying that you would long for it, what, how do you move towards God in this way? Faith is putting on that harness. It is seeing the Lord Jesus is the only one in the universe qualified to rescue us. It's accepting the terms of the rescue about which Peter is so excited. And the terms of the rescue are not just, I need you to try a little harder and be a little kinder. No, 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 no. The terms of the rescue are, you need to be born again. And he can arrange that. He's the one who causes it by his great mercy. Seeing the Lord Jesus as the only one qualified to rescue us, accepting the terms of the rescue, recognizing our own sinfulness in that, and entrusting ourselves entirely, uniquely, and without reservation to him. That's putting the harness on. That's the faith. And that, that faith guarantees us two things in verse 5. First, it guarantees our future salvation. Look at the tense in verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, as believers, we speak about when we got saved. And that's perfectly appropriate. 
If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved in that moment. Right there, right then. But saved in the sense that you can face the coming day of judgment with absolute security in Christ. But actually, it's only when that day comes that we'll see what our salvation actually looks like. If you're not very excited about your salvation at the moment, and if it is real, if you are born again, I can tell you, you'll be excited about it on that day. Only then will we really see what it means to be saved. When he comes again. When those who mock him and disregard him and treat him as nothing have to stand before him. And their hearts are as full of sin as our hearts will be. The difference will be that our Savior has died for us and paid for us. On that day when he steps forward and says, He's mine. She's mine. On that day, we will know our salvation. We will marvel at that salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So you are saved now if your trust is in Christ. But you will know the reality of your salvation on that day. We'll be grateful on that day. And putting on that harness... Expressing that faith in the Lord Jesus guarantees our future salvation and it guarantees our present protection. First part of verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith. Guarded by God, protected by his power. Now we're going to pick up on this in next, next, next week, God willing. When we see how this protection connects to our suffering just now. How can we be guarded by God's power and still clobbered by painful circumstances? Peter's readers were, you and I are, how does that work out? Is there a contradiction here? How can we be guarded by God's power and still feel and experience lots of affliction in life? We're going to come to that, God willing, next week. Peter has much to show us. But as we close now, as we close now, are you, are you wearing that harness? Is the Lord Jesus your rescuer? Have you been astounded by his mercy to you? Maybe even this morning as you've sat here. Have you been born again to this living hope? Do you have a certainty of this eternal security? Do you find welling up in your heart what Peter found welling up in his? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, thank you for saving me. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this explosive praise from the Apostle Peter on the page of our Bibles this morning. Would you help us always to be a church family who want to make time to look at you and your word, to grow our understanding of you, but would you help us not to be a church family who just grow in our knowledge? Would it affect our our feelings, would it cause praise to arise from deep in our hearts to you as it did with Peter as he wrote this letter? Would you remind us afresh this morning of how great our salvation is if our trust is already in you? Would we marvel at it from the depths of our being? 
And for anyone here this morning or listening or watching, Father, you are the sovereign God. You're the God of salvation. Would you do the work? Would you show mercy? Would you cause us to be born again into this living hope? Would you cause us to see the absolute centrality of your Son, his life and his death and his resurrection, and his kingly reign and his promised return? And would you bring us into that eternal security as we place our faith and trust in a childlike way into him? In whose precious name we ask it. Amen.